Good afternoon. You're listening to the Emily Rooney Show. If only you could smell through the radio. Sadly, we can only describe it. I'm talking about the corpse flower now in bloom at the Franklin Park Zoo. It's technically called Amorphophallus titanium, but it's better known as a corpse flower because that's how it smells when in full bloom. Meanwhile, if you are dying to get a whiff, get over there today because the bloom comes off in a day or so. I'm joined here on the telephone by Harry Liggett. He's the manager of horticulture and grounds at the Zoo New England. Welcome, Harry. Hello, how are you? So uh, are you in sight of the flower right now? Uh, I'm stepping outside of the greenhouse for a little bit. It's getting pretty hot in there. And, uh, <laughs> it, well, the stench is gone. That's uh, That odor kind of dissipated uh, a couple of hours ago. So it's oh, not that's so too bad. bad. Yeah. How bad was it when it first got going? Uh, um, it was really bad last night. It opened up around 9.30. Um, and at, at that point, it's the strongest it smells. I... Uh, Fortunately, I uh, got out of there just before then. Came in at 6 this morning, and it still hit me pretty good. Huh. Kind of reminded me of something like uh, rotting fish or something like yeah, that. Yeah, gross. Well, I, I have a couple questions about this. If, if, if the flower is in a greenhouse, I mean, this it's supposed to, it, it, it blooms, and it's supposed to attract carrion beetles, flesh flies, that kind of thing, so they can pollinate. Right. How do those bugs get at it if it's inside? Well, uh, since it's not in its uh, natural habitat, uh, that... Uh, pollination uh, process won't take place. Oh, so you just, you don't, you don't even, um, you don't even try to get, get bugs into it, just? No, no, if there were a bug, that would be me myself pollinating it. Um, <laughs> um, one of the things about, uh, from the literature I've uh, read regarding that and uh, successfully pollinating it, once it does uh, set fruit, uh, Quite often, the tuber that the flower emerges from will uh, die after that. Hmm. So, describe this thing. There's a reason why they call it a Morphophallus titanium. It really is quite phallic. In addition to being, you know, yeah. weird, and it's got this huge thing that emerges through it. What is that? Okay. Well, um, the uh, the central uh, phallic thing that is looked at there is called the uh, statex. Um, and that is surrounded by a petal called the uh, spade, and there are sheaths that were uh, pushed up against it, housing all that, and those got pushed off the other evening. So uh, underneath this flower uh, is uh, for this one, which grew uh, 4 feet 9 inches and had a width of 3 feet 3 inches. Underneath that is a 200-pound tuber. Wow. Why does yeah, it... Yes? Well, why does it why does it only bloom every fifteen years or so? I mean, why is it one of these uh, things that comes out every year? Um, I believe it's the whole process of uh, for such a massive flower that it is, it needs to generate and store massive amounts of energy in that tuber. So, uh, especially in one over four feet, you can imagine how much energy that needs. Yeah. Uh, so after it flowers, it'll go into this uh, leaf stage, and that whole leaf stage is a whole process process of generating energy, and that energy is going to uh, be stored into that tuber, and they'll, you know, a couple years down the road, possibly five years, maybe three, possibly longer than that, they'll have enough energy to uh, do its bloom again. And that mm-hmm. leaf stage can happen uh, several times over the course of the next several years. Hmm. So do you get pretty excited, excited when you see that it's getting ready to bloom? I mean, it must be, you don't really know oh. when it's going to happen, do you? <laughs> yeah, well, it's uh, uh, definitely a, a game of patience with it there. Um, there's indications that when it would uh, bloom, and we've learned that uh, besides from uh, reading what 
of the university universities have done uh, that it goes through a rapid growth cycle, and at the end of the cycle, the uh, growth pretty much uh, ends at that point. And if uh, any time after that, it'll open up bloom. Uh, the first one we had that bloomed back on June 7th. Uh, it grew four to five inches a day for about five days straight, and the uh, following two days after that, it grew one inch a day. And uh, on that second day that evening, it opened up. Wow. Um, as far as this one goes, this uh, went through a rapid growth rate of three to four inches a day for four days straight. And then four days after that, which uh, we're at now, it finally opened up. Hmm. So what has the reaction been? Who's coming in? Is it just families and local people, botanists, gardeners, biologists? Oh, who's been buying? Everybody. It really started a cult following. Uh, <laughs> I guess we opened up uh, last Thursday or Friday to the public for free at um, 8 in the morning to 9.30. And then in the evening from 6 to 8. And there's been, you know, repeat visitors coming in. And uh, they're all getting to know each other. Everybody's been really wonderful. And what I found amazing last night, the group that was uh, sitting and standing around, they made my job easy for me because they knew all about the flowers. So they were just telling the guests that hadn't been there before exactly what was going on. And there's several stages of that. So really great reaction from the the public. Uh, I think we've had something like over 10,000 visitors at this point to see it. And everybody seems to be really happy with it. Talking to Harry Liggett, he's the manager of horticulture and grounds at Zoo New England, and we're talking about that very cool corpse flower that's now in bloom over there. Um, so, so people who are, are are coming in, I mean, one of the things that I I, I was really interested in, in, in that I read in the paper is that you can't get near it, you can't touch it. I, mean, I suppose it would be tempting to reach out and touch it, but I guess it was you who was quoted as saying that any kind of a scratch, any kind of contact. Um, could damage it maybe even permanently. Oh, yeah. This thing is really spoiled. Uh, <laughs> when we got these tubers back in uh, the end of April from uh, a doctor in uh, New Hampshire who generously donated uh, actually a total of five to us, uh, we had to repot them in a new, fresh medium. And when we did that, we, we put on gloves because uh, you know, we didn't want to harm the, uh, the tuber with uh, our fingernails scratching it. So, you know, we had 200 pounds. We got about four people to pick each one up, and then we laid it down on burlap, not to bruise it in any way. And uh, I told my daughter all about this, and she was kind of surprised that, you know, this thing was getting more attention than her these days. Or or, or a uh, an animal, I suppose, over there. So they're, they're, yeah, yeah, yeah. they're indigenous to Western Indonesia. This this oral surgeon in Laconia, New Hampshire, who donated five of them, Dr. Louis Ricciardello, I think it is, yeah. What was he doing with them, and how was he caring for them? Well, um, he has his own greenhouse. Uh, he informed me that he has a collection of around 50 of them. Really? And uh, he holds, back. it was back in 2010, he had the Guinness Book of World Records for the largest one to bloom, as I say, in captivity, and that was over 10 feet tall. Really? Yeah. So he still has a bunch of them. He's, he... Yeah, he certainly does. He He's wasn't... got one new competitor now who's going to try to beat that. Ten-foot record. So now, are, is this a permanent donation to uh, Zoo New England? That these are, are these yours now? Yes, it is. It's uh, a really generous donation by uh, Dr. Lou Riccardello there, and uh, we hope that we can get a lot more blooms from these these two big uh, 200-pound tubers that he gave us and the three little ones he gave us as I well. mean, he obviously grows them. I mean, is, is it possible for you to create another one? I mean, how would that work? 
Yeah, uh, well, he's going to work with me on propagating um, cuttings off of the tubers. Uh-huh. So we can start a couple of more. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> All right. This is great. Well, I don't know if I'm going to get over there. We have a crew over there today, so hopefully we'll get a couple pictures before the, the bloom is off the rose, so to speak. So how much longer well, is it going to be in full? How much longer do you think it'll be open? I think it's going to look pretty decent through the rest of the afternoon. And uh, so it's already showing a little bit signs of uh, a little bit of withering. I think that's just to be the heat right now. Mm-hmm. It's getting so hot and hot in there, but we got the, the misters going, the humidity. So it should it should look good for the rest of the day, and and then uh, definitely by tomorrow it'll be it'll be pretty much be done. All right, Harry Liggett, manager of horticulture and grounds at Zoo New England. Thanks so much. Thank you. Up next, why it's bad and why it sometimes feels so good to curse. You're listening to the Emily Rooney Show from eighty nine point seven WGBH Boston Public Radio. This program is made possible thanks to you and Old Sturbridge Village celebrating Independence Day, a chance to celebrate America's birthday with music, magic, and a fireworks display at dusk on July 3rd, and a full day of family fun on the 4th. Details and tickets at osv.org. And Harvard Vanguard Medical Associates, offering complete health care for you and your family. With 21 locations across greater Boston, Harvard Vanguard welcomes new patients and accepts most insurance. CareMadeEasy.org, an affiliate of Atrius Health. And members of the Ralph Lowell Society, these most generous annual contributors lead the way in sustaining WGBH as a public media resource, available and free to all. WGBH.org slash Ralph Lowell. PRI's The World brings you more than just today's news. Yeah, I had an interview once and, and the guy said, uh, so what was it like taking the cameras to your village and the elders seeing these cameras for the first time? <laughs> you know, these soul-capturing contraptions, you know. How, how did they feel about that? You know, we've had TV there for like 60 years. I'm Marco Werman. Join us and hear the world. Coming up at 3 here on 89.7 WGBH. If you have a vehicle that no longer works for you, put it to work for WGBH and turn that car, truck, trailer, boat, or motorcycle you don't really need into something you really want. It's Morning Edition. Donate your unwanted vehicle to WGBH. We'll take care of the paperwork, schedule the pickup, and you'll earn a tax deduction, all while supporting the programs you depend on. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. Call 855-426-2406. I'm Callie Crossley. On the next Callie Crossley Show, we look at legislation that would guarantee equal pay in the workplace. That's today at 1 on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. You're listening to The Emily Rooney Show. As you've probably heard by now, residents in the town of Middleborough recently voted to impose a $20 fine on public profanity. It might just be the world's largest swear jar, as a matter of fact. But what exactly makes a curse word a curse word? In a second, I'll ask a certified entomologist that question. But first, we can't talk about swearing without hearing from the master himself, comedian George Carlin. 
You know, what are these words that I'm talking about? They're just words that we've decided, sort of decided, not to use all the time. That's about the only thing you can really say about them for sure. And they're the only words that seem to have that restriction. I mean, there are a lot of words you can say whenever you want, you know. Pneumonia! Nobody gives you a lot of <laughs> Oh, that's George Carlin. I'm talking here in the studio to Peter Sokolowski. You're the editor-at-large for Merriam-Webster. I mean, what is it about? First of all, all the seven dirty words, we couldn't put them on the air. That's, that's, that's <laughs> George Carlin's very hilarious riff. Are they all in the dictionary? They sure are. Yes, they sure are. Um, because, you know, one of the real big jobs of a dictionary is to tell the truth about words. And the fact is these are real words. We can't deny their existence. We sometimes wish that people wouldn't use them in public or wouldn't use them in school. Uh, but because they're real words, we do report on them, kind of as a journalist would report on the facts of a story. Uh, we acknowledge that the word exists. We, it has a spelling. It has a pronunciation and usually a story or etymology, history. Um, and then we'll often give that usage information that says this is an offensive word. You shouldn't use this in professional or academic writing. Well, how did how did they get to be that? I mean, you think about the the F word. I mean, everybody knows know. what it means. Sure. How did it get to be profane? Well, why is it profane? Right, and why is it? And it always was, and that's an important point. It, it, it's also important to mention that it's one of the oldest words in the English language. It goes back to the you know to the old Germanic roots of English, and it's maybe worth noting that our sort of our history of profanity in in English has. Uh, sort of three recognizable stages. There's the blasphemy stage, which is the period of early modern English, Shakespeare's time, and maybe a century afterward. And then the obscenity phase, where the words of sexual organs and acts became the, the principal, uh, principal bad words. And then now we're kind of in the identity phase, where it's uh, race or sexual orientation, other kinds of words that are really the, the number one bad words in our culture. And if we think about how language, it's a kind of great example of how language changes, because if we think back to those Shakespearean oaths or the, the, the blasphemous words of that time, they're kind of charming to us now. Zounds or zounds, Z-O-U-N-D-S, which was God's wounds, uh, appears in Shakespeare's plays. And gadzooks, which meant uh, God's hooks or the, or the nails of the cross. Um, and, and the adjective bloody that is more common in British English or Australian English than in American English. Even egad, uh, which meant oh God, of course. Um, and so those are sort of charming uh, and uh, archaic sounding terms, but they were swears of their really? day. Yeah, and today, of course, uh, and, and in those days, words like the F word or others of that very uh, most intense kind were almost never spelled out, almost never written down. They were sometimes written with their initials, as we might see today, even in the New York Times. Um, so they were always very, very bad words. But the fact is, uh, you know, dictionaries had them in uh, the, in, in place uh, in the 16th century and the 17th century. But when Dr. Johnson, Samuel Johnson, made his dictionary in 1755, he decided not to include them. And then he set a precedent that uh, was not broken until uh, almost, well, 200 and change, 225 years later, 1969, 1970, was when these words finally came into American dictionaries. It's funny because the F word I keep going back to because a lot of people use it with regularity. 
And some of the other swear words just don't come up mm-hmm. with the same, even though that one is arguably the worst. That's sure. the one that seems to be the most common. And it's also the most flexible because, of course, it's most parts of speech and sometimes is used uh, without any meaning whatsoever. Exactly. It's, it's, it's used as we describe uh, as a meaningless – mm, Yeah, right. A meaningless or... intensifier. A meaningless, <laughs> a meaningless intensifier, intensifier. Which I think is a, a beautiful yeah. way to explain uh, exactly you – know, what you're actually making intense is what follows, is, is what your idea is, is what the noun is. Um, and it's, it's, it's such a flexible word and, and in some ways for some people such a fun word too. Um, there is a book dedicated to it called The F Word by Jesse Scheidlauer who's an editor with the Oxford English Dictionary and it tells that story because it's so flexible that it, it actually merits a book uh, unto itself, kind of a little dictionary of, of vulgarity. Hmm. Is that is it fairly recent that it has become that uh, and you, you call it you know nonspecific but it, it's it's used in such a wide range now. Is that I mean, can you measure that in terms of decades? You or can, century you or? can, and I, and and, uh, and I I'm, I haven't made an academic study of that, but it's like many words in English that move from the literal to the abstract, or from the concrete. Uh, literal to the metaphorical, from the concrete to the abstract. And you will see that that word back in the Renaissance uh, was used mostly as a verb and referring to a sexual act. Mm -hmm. And then as as we come, you know, you think of the the slang sometimes that we hear in depictions of uh, the Vietnam War and the slang of the soldiers. Um, And we realize that the word was used in a much uh, broader way and to, of course, just generally refer to uh, displeasure (laughs) or pain. The fact is, as we'll hear later, I'm sure, uh, from your other guest, swearing has to do with emotion. Yeah, I'll, I'll bring him in now. On the phone, I've got Timothy Jay. He's a psychology professor at the Massachusetts College of Liberal Arts and author of Cursing in America, Why We Curse. Well, welcome, Tim. You there? I'm darn glad to be here. Darn glad. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I always say, listen, this is uh, public radio. We can say what we want. But there's a little, little sign here in the studio that I just noticed. <laughs> Cell phone off. Stay near Mike. No swearing. No swearing. I think I've broken that rule a couple times with some <laughs> mo- very moderate, very moderate um, swearing. But why, why is it? It can be so satisfying. What is it? Why, 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 why is it so satisfying occasionally to do it? Ah, it's uh, cathartic. I think it, uh, even if you looked at something like humor, kind of the more um, arousing something is at the punchline that, you know, the more emotional expression. And I think that these, that's what these words are doing. Uh, so we sort of match uh, what comes out uh, to, you know, what the emotional conditions are. So, you know, like layers on a cake, you know, the more pain you're in, the the deeper the swearing goes. Some, sometimes we were saying it's used to punctuate or to shock or something like that, but it's become so commonplace. We 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 do it in the home. That's the name of your book, cursing in America, cursing in the home. But at home, I mean, it, it just, it's just I, people just sort of drop it in there. Well, uh, I, again, it's very highly contextualized, and uh, we're you know we're now looking at some of the personality variables of, uh, you know, people that do or do not use this. So people with high religiosity or high sex anxiety don't use this language as freely as other people do. And religiosity is probably uh, a good uh, mediator of this. And and people have different rules for parts of their house, like what dad can say in the shop or out in the garage, or the kids can say things in the backyard. But, you know, at the dinner table, you're not allowed to say certain things. So even the house gets divided up into... Uh, swearing statuses. Hmm. 
You know, my my father was a real prude about that. I mean, he, a couple words he liked to use, hell damn, bastard he liked, <laughs> but never a real vile swear word. I mean, he just it didn't enter his lexicon. It just and no one would ever use any of that language around him either. And and I don't know whether that was uh, and he was in the war, he was in the army, <laughs> but he <laughs> just he was one of those people who just he he thought that it was um, that. It, it, it said something about your intellectual capacity if you had to reach for that word and you couldn't find the right one. Sometimes it's the most precise word, though, <laughs> you know, and, and, <laughs> right. and so there, there's, a, there's a case for that. The fact is, too, we, we have to label them in the dictionary and we, we sort of have to make some kind of apparatus for identifying them. We have four labels, uh, disparaging, offensive, vulgar, and obscene. Mm-hmm. So disparaging and offensive, that's sort of a sliding scale. And we, we try to label words disparaging if they are clearly uh, part of the intent of the yes. utterance of that word. Offensive, that's, that re- has to do with the reception or the way the word is understood. Um, vulgar covers a, a, wide, uh, a, a wide vocabulary, and obscene is really only used a handful of times in the dictionary for the very worst of these. So you can think of um, uh, the F word in the sense to, to mess up, you know, to, yep. just to make mm-hmm. an error. And we label that as vulgar because no one is going to take a personal offense to that other than simply the use of a word that uh, in other contexts could be very offensive. You know, one of the things that's curiosity to me is some of these words are, are real things, like a bastard. How did mm-hmm. how does that become uh, a swear word when actually it's 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 it has a real meaning, a real definition? Not that the other words don't, well, I but think this one. That these are all conventions. So, and a lot of this is around morality and sexuality, which has been primary in this country since the Puritans came here. So. It's not so much that the word itself is offensive, it's the behavior or the emotion that underlies the word that the taboo exists in illegitimate children, not the label you Mm. give to them. I see. Absolutely. And it's a good example of a word moving from the sort of literal to the metaphorical. Mm-hmm. Um, the literal uh, shame of illegitimacy, especially in the early modern period, um, and that it gets translated down through the ages into uh, a, a much broader insult. What was your take, both of you? I'm talking to uh, Peter Sokolowski, who's editor-at-large at Merriam-Webster and Timothy J., psychology professor at Mass College of Art, liberal arts, and author of Cursing in America. What, what was your take on, on this thing with, with Middleborough. I mean, they were derided and ridiculed a little bit, but actually when people sort of started looking at it, it's 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 the reason we're having this conversation. And, and that is if you swear in public, you could be fined $20. Now, I don't know if they're going to go around reinforcing that or not, but it was brought on by a group of local teenagers who apparently hang out in town and, and, and say offensive stuff and, you know. Well, every everybody wants a better world, you know, and so an attempt to make the world better for children or teenagers, you know, who's going to argue with that? But this, the funny thing about talking about this is it's always an interesting news item when it's initiated, but there's never any follow-up to show that these things are always and always have been abject failures. <laughs> uh, we've tried to legislate uh, language in public uh, since the 1600s, and a lot of these laws um, like this recent one, uh, you know, they go back to the 1800s. A lot of states have these as disorderly conduct codes. Um, I find them kind of uh, uh, odious in that they're very hard to police and that the police use these kinds of laws in very discretionary uh, manner and end up, you know, like the rich got their lawyer's kids. They're not going to get arrested for this. <laughs> um, 
you know, it's kind of waiting for somebody to sneeze and then finding them is, is so common. But the bottom line is these things don't work. And, and nobody ever follows up and shows uh, these laws that we enacted never worked. If they worked, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have a problem with this, but they've never worked. Yeah, this really – I agree completely. There's, two, there's sort of two issues here. There's the, there's the, uh, the fact that uh, there are common standards of decency uh, and language is really the ultimate committee product. You know, the whole culture has agreed that this word is a bad word or that word is a good word. And uh, there isn't a Supreme Court of language in fact. And so it's the culture that has uh, sort of set these standards. Uh, but then there, there, the, other, the other question that is being addressed perhaps in, in Middleborough is uh, are these standards changing or sliding or falling? Uh, are there are there issues of um, declining mor- morality that uh, is indicated by this language? And th- you know that's a broader cultural question. You know I would say that uh, certainly since the '60s, um, uh, there's been a uh, which corresponds exactly to when these words were introduced to dictionaries. Inter- interestingly enough, um, there's been a much uh, greater use of these words in the public sphere, and that's part of the counterculture. That's part of the the, the revolt against authority, which began with language uh, as well. And so the, the fact is we can't uh, legislate language, and if you told uh, a group of people to use only a certain word for a certain thing, it would be very difficult to enforce. Well, when you talk about legislating language, this is exactly what the FCC tries to do mm-hmm. to, to, to broadcasters. This is <laughs> witness why we have the sign here in the studio that says no swearing. But well, should there that, be legislation I mean, those, for the for I mean those cases those cases are in front of the Supreme Court right now, where they have been uh, you know extremely vague about, you know, and have changed their standards. So in Fox versus FCC, um, I think we've seen, uh, and now on appeal, that that that, uh, that they've kind of overreached. And it, it's kind of ironic, uh, you know, that in this uh, discussion about language standards, there's still um, a clear and present um, religious conservative right that monitors the media mm. and produces millions of complaints. Uh, parents, Television Council, Morality and Media, Focus on the Family, these generate the complaints to the FCC. And, uh, you know, it's, I think it's part of why, you know, we have all this focus on language. So at the same time, we're arguing that uh, questions about morality and changing standards, you know, there's a backlash on the right. It comes from the other side too, because Tipper Gore, of course, was uh, was a, a promoter of decency in in music, and and that had to do with broadcasting as well. But certainly, labeling of of music is was her was her perspective, and it's interesting that that's from the other political sphere. What's interesting is we began with George Carlin this this afternoon, and uh, he made that routine of the seven words yeah. you can't say, uh, and in fact, he made that up. There were there was not an official list. Yeah, no. but the <laughs> now ir- there is. <laughs> but the irony is that, that that routine was broadcast on the radio and the FCC sued the radio station, and it did become an actual decision. So there was a kind of direct connection with, uh, and, and they therefore became absolutely words that you couldn't say. But now this legislation is origin. The, it, it's interesting. The origin of the complaint to the FCC was John Douglas, a, uh, you know, who was a, one of these morality and media guys, and he was complaining uh, that he heard this on the radio with his 15-year-old son, and in some way it was going to corrupt his son. So that's the origin of the complaint there that went all the way to the Supreme Court. Exactly. One one guy in a city of seven million people, with <laughs> every fifteen year old in America knows all of the language. You know, if they didn't, something was wrong with them. So his you know his kid wasn't being corrupted at all. He was already corrupted just by convention. 
we've, we've, it's complicated now, too, with broadcast versus cable and Twitter and all these other media out there because only over-the-air is being regulated. You can say whatever you want on cable, yet the delivery mm. system is identical. We're all getting broadcast and cable delivered through the same system. And so how they're going to separate, I don't see how this can hold up. Uh, going forward. I don't know. Well, that's well, a good point. We don't all get everything. I mean, you've got to have money to get HBO. I mean, to hear a lot of good swearing, like on The <laughs> Sopranos or the or on shows like The the Wire, poor people can't hear No, but ESPN, you're allowed to swear on ESPN. It's cable. You know, you can swear. You can say whatever you want. You know, it's yeah, a, but not on broadcast TV, though. Yeah, but, and, and again, I think the religious right is want to, I mean, they have plans to um, extend the FCC regulations into cable and the Internet. And even some places in Arizona, they wanted the FCC standards to be used in schools. Hmm. And, of course, print, the print media, which we haven't talked about, uh, also exists. You know, there's a longstanding convention. The New York Times won't print these words. The Washington Post only printed uh, the F word when it was part of the Star Report and yeah. then ultimately when it, was, uh, when it was used as an invective by the sitting vice president, pre- Vice President Cheney. Those are the only two, which is a little bit ironic because both of them were uh, basically, uh, 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 you know, started by right-wing or, or Republican um, uh, speakers. Uh, and that's sort of an interesting point that they made an Exception because it was part of the news story itself. Mm. We're talking about swearing. I've got Peter Sokolowski, editor at large at Miriam Webster here in the studio, and Timothy Jay, psychology professor at the Mass College of Liberal Arts. He's on the telephone. What about other cultures? Do they have the equivalent of these swear words? And, you know, yeah, they do. Uh, one, one of the things I, I've looked at, and uh, I'm certainly, if we looked in dictionaries and other uh, cultures, you'd see the same thing. But one of the things we look at is Tourette syndrome mm. in mm. different cultures, and that will show you pretty much the most socially inappropriate words and behaviors. That's funny. Because those people have lost uh, the kind of the frontal lobe control over their uh, uh, behaviors and land language. So every place we've looked at uh, Tourette syndrome, every culture has it. Of course, the words you get in a very religious culture, they'll, they'll be more religious than sexual, but, um, you know, it kind of shows you what the standards are in each culture just by looking at that uh, brain syndrome. Sure, the filter is gone in some way. Uh, I know that in French-speaking Canada, for example, the worst words are absolutely religious words, and so words like tabernacle, which is about as uh, neutral a term as we could think of, is a, is a real swear word uh, up there, or used to be, you know, in, in, the, in, in, in French-Canadian, because it's a very Catholic culture. Um, and I know that in Russia, when they, now that uh, in, in the sort of post-Soviet era, new dictionaries are coming out, and some of them have proposed um, accounting for an enormous subculture of language, a kind of a, a parallel language uh, uh, that's recognized as a street um, uh, and vulgar language. And mo- oh, I've never met a Russian who thinks that those words should be in the dictionary. <laughs> yeah, oh, really? They say, oh, no, 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 they should never be in the really? dictionary. And it's very funny that uh, they, they have been uh, forbidden to use them uh, officially for their whole lives, and people who grew up under, under the Communist era, and now they're you know they, they now have an opportunity to publish, and they're choosing uh, in some ways sometimes not to uh, not to acknowledge that these words exist. Hey, by the way, is the middle finger universal? Is that something that, that is that language that's recognized all over the world? I don't think not, so. Not really, but there are <laughs> gestures that mean that. Uh, um, Morris has a book on that uh, kind of universal gestures, and you get that in Tourette syndrome too. Yeah. So. Greeks Greeks might not use that word. They they use that like put the thumb behind the index finger and the and you know 
in a kind of a fist like that's the fig, you know, mm-hmm. and I won't tell you what that means. You can look it up. <laughs> but uh, the, the middle finger isn't isn't universal. All right. Yeah, and the gesture of your sort of your 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 backhanded yeah, that uh, one. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. gesture under your chin is, is popular in Europe as in well. Europe. All right. This has been interesting and fun. Peter Sokolowski and Timothy J. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Emily. Up Darn next, glad to be here. what chain of events recently ended with our resident foodie and award-winning food writer for the Atlantic, Corby Kummer, foraging for foods in the wilds of Denmark? We'll find out. You're listening to The Emily Rooney Show from 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. This program is on WGBH thanks to you and the Museum of Science, now showing To the Arctic, presented by Warner Brothers and IMAX. The Museum of Science is proud to support Radio Nova, weekday mornings here on 89.7 WGBH. And Samet's Blackstone. Clients certainly do thank us for our sponsorship of 89.7. Roger Samet's president. It's not a tactical buy, but it's something that builds awareness over time. And because the brand values of WGBH and of Samet's Blackstone mesh, it adds meaning to what we stand for in a way that a tactical buy probably could not. To learn more, visit WGBH.org slash sponsorship. On the next Callie Crossley show, income inequality between men and women. Earlier this month, Senate Republicans blocked a Democratic bill calling for equal pay in the workplace. The legislation would require employers to prove that differences in pay are based on skill, education, and other criteria not related to gender. What does this mean for women in the workplace? Will this affect how women vote in November? Today at 1 on WGBH. Support WGBH right now and you'll automatically be entered to win a trip to England. Make an online gift and you and a guest could be going to visit High Clear Castle, referred to on Masterpiece simply as Downton Abbey. Prize includes round-trip airfare from Lufthansa, four-night stay at the Vineyard at Stockcross, and a private tour of High Clear Castle led by the Lady of the House, Fiona, Countess of Carnarvon. For a chance to win, visit WGBH.org. Innovation. It has a huge impact on business and life here in the Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Join me each week for Innovation Hub, the big ideas happening in Boston, Saturday mornings at 7 and Sunday nights at 10 here on WGBH Radio. You're listening to The Emily Rooney Show. Well, we all know that food is better the fresher it is, but few of us would go to the lengths that my next guest did recently, Corby. Word bubbling up from my extensive Scandinavian spy network suggests you were recently spotted foraging for food in the wilds of Denmark. I was. Do you know, foodies have this ritual that's called a a foraging, my foraging with Renee article. Who's Renee? (laughs) Renee is named Renee Red Zeppi, raised in Denmark of a Muslim father and a Danish mother. And married to a Jewish woman, so he feels very multicultural, uh, despite Denmark's recent reputation. He took a bunch of old army field manuals that he found, and he went into the woods, the woods of northern Europe. 
and said, what can I eat? What can I actually serve at a fancy restaurant? Why would he do this? Because he had gone and worked in Spain at what was then the world's best restaurant, El Bulli, which has since closed so that they can just do a high-tech intellectual research lab. <laughs> what? And that guy at El Bulli, by the way, comes to Harvard every fall, and he's hmm. masterminded a molecular gastronomy course, which is leading the country and another reason for Cambridge and Boston to be proud. But his disciple went back to his home in Denmark and said, well, I'm not in the Mediterranean. I'm not going to make Mediterranean food. What's here? What's growing in the woods? So he started bringing back this food and now he has taken the crown from El Bulli. Even though El Bulli shut last year, this is his third year of being named best restaurant in the world. Wow. So I hate the very idea of something called the best restaurant yeah, really. in the world, and I'm sure I'm going to hate it, especially when you're served 30 to 40 things at a meal, which is like my next hate, most hated. I hate that too, thing. along with brunch. I can't stand that. Really. <laughs> yeah, well, Don't what, ever invite me to brunch. What about a 12-course tasting brunch? No, That's your idea no. of the worst thing on earth. I don't like wine earth. tastings either. Just give me a glass of wine. Okay, right. <laughs> so the idea is you're being presented all this foraged food with ceremony. Now, I absolutely fell over and loved it. I did not expect this. I'm disappointed in myself just really? saying it to you, seeing your skepticism. Yeah. But I had gone out into the woods, not with this legendary Rene Redzepi, who's only in his mid-30s, completely like a monk. He just works in this restaurant. He's got two daughters he hardly ever sees, spending all of his time working. But I went with some of his people, uh, American English, because as with El Bulli, all the most ambitious cooks in the world want to go to Denmark and work with this guy. So the, like the most interesting kids in food have to go there and work in the kitchen. They're great. So this young woman leaned over when we got into the special woods where we were going to find great young pine needles. You eat pine needles. I ate a lot of young pine needles. I'm going to go foraging for them needles. here. Yeah. Very young, like a half inch maximum length and very light green, not the dark green we're used to. Well, they're delicious. There, I said it. I can't believe I'm saying it off the radio. What do you eat them with? Um, they put them... It's a spice. No, they put them over a salad. They're oh. actually kind of okay. sweet. Then there's something called chickweed. Do you know what chickweed is? Because it grows everywhere. It grows on the street. It grows in your backyard. It grows in an alley. I'd never known it had a name, let alone that it was edible. It has a lemony taste. It's perfectly good. Wash it before you eat it. You know, wash all this stuff. Well, what else? Uh, all like kinds, mushrooms? I mean, what? All, well, not mushrooms because I don't want to die from no. eating the wrong mushroom. I've been mushroom hunting in Vermont and in Massachusetts, and I just will take my haul and leave it to somebody who really knows. I don't want to do that myself. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but when it comes to things like what looked like clover and turned out to be a form of sorrel, well, it was wonderful. And lemony. It turns out there's lots of wild kinds of sorrel, which you can go out in the supermarket and buy. One of the kids who was foraging said, you know, we bring a lot of people out here and show them what they can eat. But they say unless it's organic and in a plastic bag in the supermarket – they're too afraid to eat it. Yeah, I understand that. You just admitted you were afraid with the mushroom. Yeah, I'm afraid with a mushroom, but the idea that they don't think it's organic when well, there's nothing dumb, more organic yeah. than going out into the woods and actually foraging what you're eating. So how long were you there? Well, long... I was there a week, and they all, they also have a research lab uh, of their own, which is on a houseboat, incredibly scenic in Copenhagen. And I visited the restaurants of a number of young chefs who've been influenced by this guy. And I think what they're trying to do is something we should and can be doing in New England too, and that is saying, 
okay, Italy and Spain have, you know, fantastic ingredients, but it's the Mediterranean. Well, we don't live there. So what are we going to do? We're going to go out and find what's right here and we can eat and make a great, elegant, really fresh-tasting, delicious cuisine. They're hardcore at this restaurant, Noma. No lemon, you know, no coffee. They make all kinds of their own vinegar. No lemon? Right, no lemon. Why not? Because it doesn't grow there. Oh, so come this on. is <laughs> this is the rule. Okay, so people who are strictly local, yeah. like when Barbara Kingsolver wrote her book Animal Vegetable yeah, Miracle, yeah. um she went, you know, for a year without coffee. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to give up lemon. But I tell you, places that make their own vinegars, you don't miss the lemon. You really don't. There were lots of plus this summer sorrel and stuff I was saying. It's naturally lemony. Now I'm going to have the gross out story. Okay. They had just come <laughs> from Amsterdam where there is a leading research lab that is trying to make insects the new tofu. They're an incredibly cheap, edible, nourishing, clean protein. Now, they run this through in industrial cleaners, and they're, they're literally trying to make it like hamburger helper. Mix it with other stuff so you'll never know. The Atlantic ran a piece about this by Dan Frompson about a year ago, a really fun piece. They'd gone to this leading lab in Amsterdam, and so the kids who were coming home all took out soup spoons, went into the dirt, and foraged for ants. And the minute they saw an ant, they popped it into their mouths. So ants are, it turns out, except if you go to the Amazon or something, they're all edible. Some of them bite you, but they're usually red mm. and they're usually big. And almost every other ant you can pop into your mouth and it has this lemony taste and it's great protein. How about so, those giant ones that are about an <clears throat> inch long with the wings on their backs? Oh, I don't know about those. I saw those, those up in... Uh, yeah. yeah. So th those are real gross-out stuff. Totally disgusting. But I think that they're edible, too. Lots I'm of wing things like grass. Right. You're not going to find out by just leaning down with a soup spoon. And then they knocked over an anthill, and they had found out from a guy who was a woodsman and came in and visited them that when you knock over an anthill, the ants spray this getaway substance that it tastes so lemony that people in the woods used to knock over anthills and hold out a piece of bread in the middle of it what? to get that really? spray because it was seasoning it with these lemony things. That's funny. And when I brought they, – they brought all these containers of ants back, which by the way, Rene Redzepi, the chef, he took their containers of ants – and he dropped them into creme fraiche that he had made and put them on plates for a visiting posse of a dozen Japanese chefs who had landed that morning. So you can imagine landing on a plane from halfway around the world, coming to this restaurant and getting served ants. They, of course, said politely, delicious. Uh, but he does that a lot. These are some of the surprises Yeah, you get. I mean an ant is one thing. A giant cockroach would be another. Yeah, that's true. It's just surprising how clean these insects are considered to be and mm. what good sources of protein. Mm. And we have to be looking into them if we're going to keep having nourishing protein. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'm going to keep that one on the back burner, so to speak, for a while. All right. What else do we got here? Um, we, 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 we have to talk about we, – we always get into something that's in the news, but um, – Cambridge and I think Brookline now are both considering taking a page out of Mayor Bloomberg's book, which is putting a ban on giant sodas and, you know, basically sugar portioning. Mm -hmm. What do you think of that? So there's two schools of thoughts about this, and I'm very proud that at The Atlantic we got the two main exponents, Brian Wansink at Cornell, who's, did all the, who's done all this mindless eating research that we talked about last time a bit, in which you're not – if you're given a huge portion of something, you just consume it because you think 
it's kind of appropriate and right. Well, it started out in that container. Why don't I just finish it? But if you are given a smaller size, you generally finish that and don't need to go and buy the new one. That's, of course, there's a thousand loopholes in these laws. Everybody loves talking about the loopholes. But the idea, kind of like your previous segment of swearing, is make you aware of it. Mm -hmm. So the idea is if you finish this, well, you know, maybe the movie or the sports match you were watching on television has has finished and you don't need to go out and buy another one. You don't you don't have to. And that's going to result in a savings of calories you didn't even notice because it satisfied you perfectly well. But but banning it, but regulating it. I mean, you're talking. What you're saying right now is common sense. It's like get a smaller plate, buy the smaller size. Mm-hmm. But do we want the government, any government, coming in and telling us you can't sell it? Okay. Remember, they're not saying you can't eat it. You can eat just as much as you like. You can go out and buy three of those sixteen ounce. Uh, portions and have, you know, a much bigger portion. They're not saying it's illegal to consume it. They're just saying let's not serve them at certain places. It's not everywhere. You can go and buy it. You can bring in a big gallon of soda someplace if you want it. There's a million ways to get around it. It's just trying to make – here's this awful public health term that I've learned because I travel in public health circles. Make the default environment safer. So if people don't notice that it's happened, okay, this is a nice way of saying I am your nanny. For, mm-hmm. you know, that's the problem. Yeah, that's that's the issue. I am becoming your nanny. I am making the environment safer. All the soda people are comparing it to smoking. So if you make it harder to obtain these things, people are going to have fewer of them. And the Trump card they have is it costs us all $160 billion a year just actually for health treatment of obesity-related illnesses. We're all paying for this. It's not like the libertarians say, if anybody wants to kill themselves, it's yeah, a free exactly. country. Let them smoking. kill themselves. I mean, we haven't banned smoking. I mean, you made it a lot harder to do it. It just seems like picking on one it, – it's the camel's nose under the tent. You start with one thing, and before you know it, you're regulating size, you know, gallon ice cream oh. containers. You just, you know, so, and it, it could go just much further than that. But it's not going to. So right now, the public health enemy number one as far as obesity is considered to be sugared sodas because really? they don't – yeah, here's why. Yeah. They don't provoke the same or entice the same brain feelings of satiety, meaning you feel satisfied and full within 20 minutes that other foods do. There's some way that the sugar in them – bypasses those brain receptors so you aren't aware of how much you're eating. It's not going to go to ice cream. It's not going to go to other fields, foods that do make you feel full. So this is considered <clears throat> like really bad and a really easy target for helping people lose weight and be less obese. It's, it's like cigarettes. It doesn't extend to everything in society. Should you be able to buy a 16-ounce vat of diet soda? And this is where it gets complicated. Oh, there's yeah. actually there, there's no regulations on diet soda I mean, in this. Yeah. Nobody's proposing. It's just as bad. Well, it might be just as bad chemically. Yeah, but it's not just as bad for the obesity-related healthcare costs that we're all paying. Mm-hmm. It just gives you kidney stones. <laughs> <laughs> all right, moving along here. What do you want to talk about? Do you want to do um, 
We've got we've got two other things. We've right. got farm bill. The farm and we've bill. Got, what is the farm uh, bill? Out, Which one is this? So the farm bill comes up every five years. It's an enormous. Oh, that's right. Yeah. It's an enormous entitlement bill that ha- its chief component is food stamps and nutritional assistance. That's actually why it exists in this enormous range. Um, Every five years, they try to tinker with it. The Senate has been working for a long time and against all odds has is about to release a bill and is now voting on 73 amendments. Some of them are really good. Some of them help farmers markets. Some of them say, uh, you know, may I say they're attached to Republicans, say, no, no, we're not going to give farmers markets any preferential treatment. Um, most of them protect SNAP benefits. SNAP benefits are in the new word for food stamps, uh, supplemental nutritional assistance. Um, But some of them are taking money away in order to pay crop insurance. So crop insurance, see how I can summarize this, (laughs) Um, what was attacked for the past 15 years about the Farm Bill, especially the last two five-year cycles, are direct subsidies Subsidies, to people who grow the big five crops, which include cotton, nothing to do with food. Corn, soybeans, you know, corn gets put into lots of industrial products, soda, um, you know, processed food, all, all kinds of things that us right-minded foodies hate because it has nothing to do with real food. Real food is called specialty crops. All fruits and vegetables, nuts, they're called specialty crops. So finally, the direct subsidies are being abolished. What are they being replaced with? Crop insurance. So if you don't get the price that you're expecting, Ah. if you don't get the yield you're expecting, here's a guaranteed insurance program. Those are considered a backdoor subsidy to the same huge industrial growers we would like to be giving less of this money to because they make so much money as it is and redistributing it to smaller farmers. So the idea of taking food stamp money and putting it into those insurance guarantees is very unpopular with people who care about feeding people who can't afford to eat. So Senator Gillibrand from New York has introduced a measure, one of these 73 amendments, that will restore some of that money into the SNAP program. So anybody can look on various websites they can find on The Atlantic. I'm sure you'll link to it. Call the Capitol and say, here's what I support. Huh, or, you know, or if one. they say they hate farmers markets, they can, you know, say vote on that amendment. Take a look at that. All right. We can't go without talking about alfresco dining in and around Boston. You don't usually – you don't really use the word alfresco. Where can we eat alfresco I tonight? I the last time I said that. What the heck is that? <laughs> dining out, alfresco. Right. Outdoors. So everybody likes picnics. I'm not sure that we like them today, although I saw three guys when I was driving over to the studio with enormously heavy golf bags. Really? I'm about to go play tennis tonight. It's not, it doesn't bother me. All right. All right. All right. But it's tonight. You know, It's not well, in the mid-afternoon. They, yeah. were, they were playing golf. Well, I'd do golf. it now if I wasn't here. Okay, so it means dining outdoors, and there's nothing nicer. And both Boston, for a couple of years now in Cambridge, have made it much easier yep. for restaurants to have outdoor seating, which yes. is just terrific. And they've taken almost a every on. restaurant has in downtown has something. Well, it's great because you really do. Yeah, of course you can. You, you there's the exhaust, there's the noise and yeah, everything, yeah. <laughs> but it's really nicer. It is. So I've got some suggestions. You can just let, we can go by neighborhood, name a neighborhood, and I've got. We've only some. got two minutes. You got to get to it. Ah. Okay. So if you want garden dining, like the most beautiful garden in the whole area is Oleana in Cambridge. We all know that's a beautiful garden. Um, There's also a beer garden at Charlie's Kitchen and my wonderful colleague and editor Leah Menes at Boston Magazine, where I'm lucky enough to be the restaurant critic, said, you gotta love the Charlie's Kitchen for something more divey. 
So I think that's a really charming suggestion, not just fancy. Sweet Cheeks has a beer garden. You know, Sweet Cheeks is right in the Fenway. If you like barbecue, Ugh. Uh, which you don't, <laughs> <laughs> we can see that. Also sticking to the Fenway, Eastern Standard, which like Oleana will turn on warmers in October and November, yeah, know, So, nice, yeah. which is great. It's extending this outdoor dining for a long time. Also protected, Harvest and Rialto, both in, yeah. yep, both, in, both in the middle of Harvard Square. Um, you know, I recently reviewed, in fact, I think it's in this month's Boston Magazine, Sam's Above Louis. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sam's is down not only really charming. It's got fantastic, stunning views of downtown Boston. And when they have their patio open, as they will all summer, it like doubles the number of seats. The very fancy legal harbor side roof deck has the exact same spectacular views um, and has, you know, legal seafood, which everybody knows. More uh, street side is Cambridge along Main Street. There's Area Foreign Catalyst in the Area 4 area, which are these modern buildings. Traffic is never really bad there. And I think those are great suggestions, too. Right, and we will have all of those on our website so people don't have to write them down or run off the road trying to re- <laughs> get a pen and remember what those are. It'll be on wgbh.org slash Emily Corby. Kamar, always a pleasure to have you here. That was a lot of fun. Pleasure to be here. All right. That's going to do it for us this afternoon. We'll be back tomorrow at noon with a conversation not about what candidates say but how they say it and how it could determine who is the next president. And stay with us now for the Kelly Crossley Show coming up next. Do women need to negotiate for a better salary differently than men? I can already answer that question. All right, stick around to find out, but we think we know the answer. And tonight on my television show, Greater Boston, the big biotech conference is in town, and one woman has been vocally protesting, not them, but the fact that the FDA is thwarting some drugs and the, the legalization and distribution of those drugs. That's tonight at 7 on Channel 2. The Emily Rooney Show is a production of WGBH Radio on the web at WGBH.org, Boston Public Radio. I'm Emily Rooney. Have a great afternoon. Now look, don't be so picky, Mickey.